0: You want to finish what you started? You came to the right place. The girls that you came with, you might have to part with. Depending on how this thing shakes. Wabatosa, Kenosha, a kind of Milwaukee's in the
1: house. All right. To another episode of The New Look, where we're going to be taking a new look at research and development, higher ed, a variety of other things. And we're lucky to have uh, Dr. Michael McQuaid. Uh, it is usually not allowed on this podcast to, to have Steelers fans and give them a voice, but we've made an exception in your case, Doctor.
0: Thank thank you. And we're all, let's see, wait, I got it up here. We just got, we got to be sure that all the good folks in Wisconsin in particular know that we've got two teams that share a legacy and maybe two regions that'll share a little legacy that'll come up in the conversation today. So.
1: Well, I, uh, I will say this, uh, I guess it's easier to to think, nice thoughts about the Steelers since we since we beat you a decade ago in the Super Bowl. Yeah, but I well, do think the two teams are very similar in just sort of the blue collar nature, uh, the fan base. I mean, they're just iconic teams. Yeah. So I, I have nothing but love for yeah. for the Steelers. I, there's there's teams I definitely hate, but <laughs> the Steelers are not are not one of them.
0: So so I I grew up. We could talk about background. But I grew up in Pittsburgh. My dad was uh was a blue collar millwright you know 30 some years for the same company managed to get his kids all through college he was he was like one of the kindest people you ever met with an irish temper but he was a really kind guy take the nuns to shop on saturday morning and things like that but but there were two people in his life that i saw him hate in in some visceral sense one was a particular politician who i won't mention because then you'll get to understand his politics and the other was bill belichick and, and every time Bill Belichick would come on the TV, the words that would come out of my father's mouth were just things I had never heard before. It was just, it was stunning. So.
1: I love that. Good. Well, we can all be united in our, our hatred of the Patriots. So, um, okay, well, let's 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 start there. So, uh, where were you born, and, and kind of give us a sense of how and, and where you grew up?
0: Yeah. So I grew up in a suburb of Pittsburgh,
1: little
0: uh, blue collar, well, big blue collar town, baby boom town. I went to a very large high school and uh, managed to get into Carnegie Mellon, uh, which was the school I wanted to go to. I uh, came as a physicist um, and I had, so I got my degrees in physics all from CMU. So, um, and I was extraordinarily fortunate in that the summer after my freshman year, I got a job working in a physics lab. So it was a work study job as we used to call them. And the next thing you know, I was traveled into national labs and I was doing particle physics work even before I went to graduate school. So wow,
1: wow. it was just, did you know, it, at, at a very young age, I mean, I, I guess at what age did you know you kind of had a facility for physics? Uh, were you good at mathematics uh, early on? When What was kind of the light bulb moment where you thought, oh, I could do this?
0: Yeah. So, so I actually, I actually apparently claimed at 12 years old that I was going to be a physicist. You, you might argue that i had no idea what that meant at 12 years old but i was always sort of a combination of a sort of outdoors woodsy camp kind of person combined with a nerd so um, so i knew pretty early that that's what i wanted to do and uh, i have been attracted both for the physics i did and then later in career really by sort of doing things at sort of a large scale so the kind of physics i did was big accelerator physics at the national labs and big collaborations and stuff that mattered. And, and so I knew, as you say, even at sort of a teenage years, that that's the kind of stuff that I wanted to do. So um,
1: for those of us who fear the hard sciences, what is big accelerator physics sure. situate your specialty within kind of the broader yeah. physics ecosystem in, in language that even the Steelers fans could understand.
0: So so the first thing I'm going to say, and this is under no circumstances, false modesty or anything else. I am firmly of the belief that if you like to do something, it's easier to do. So I'm not going to convince anybody that I was the brightest physicist ever made, but I love doing it. And that meant the hard work to do it was was easier to do. So um, so so I'm a high energy particle physicist. So these are the folks who are working at the large experimental facilities that the government helps, helps fund, not only helps fund, funds, um, and it's where we explore what the basics of matter are. How do particles interact? W- where do the interactions come from? What's the basic building blocks of matter? What are the equations that allow us to understand matter? Um, and so for that first part of my life, I was very much, a, I was an experimentalist. I was not a theorist. I was a get your hands dirty and build stuff and um, so at the time the U S government, uh, Fermi lab outside of Chicago was pretty new at that point. Things had moved there. It was the high energy lab of the, of the world at that point. And I was fortunate enough to spend the last three years of graduate school, actually living at the laboratory and doing my experimental work out there. So, um, so it was, it was a great experience.
1: That's great. And so then you, so you got your, your job in a lab right out of undergrad? And then at what point did you go to grad school? And and was that also at Carnegie Mellon?
0: Yeah, so I started after my freshman year in a lab, they were doing experiment. It was one of the sort of last large experiments done at Brookhaven lab, which two, you know, two decades before it was the center of the world. Uh, Fermilab got built, it was higher energy, probing smaller amounts of matter, et cetera. And uh, so I, sort of got my hands dirty and cut my teeth on learning what they were doing at brookhaven and then two years later as i was finishing as an undergraduate the experiment that i also ultimately got my thesis on was approved to go to fermilab so i stayed at cmu straight through with that same group and went to graduate school there and uh, finished up all the classwork and then actually moved out to the laboratory at that point and did my did my work out there so
1: how does a physics PhD dissertation work? Is it all formulas? Are there words involved in it? How, so, how, how, does, how, does, that, how does that work?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. So, so if you're a theorist, there's uh, there's a lot of equations and a few words. If you're an experimentalist, there's a lot of sort of technology stuff. So, uh, you know, we built equipment. We made particle detectors. I wrote lots and lots of computer code and to analyze the data and you know at the beginning there's the words that say why is this worth doing and what are we trying to learn and at the back end there's all the words that say here's what we found out and the whole middle section is experimental protocols and and you know how i spent three years of my life building equipment and accumulating data and taking results so um so and then you know you have to defend your thesis and you have to convince people that you've discovered something new and you have to convince people that it was that it was uh, backed up by the data that your experiment showed. So. Of
1: and then, okay, so you finish your PhD. You're you're a, a rare triple Carnegie Mellon uh, BS, MS, and PhD. Uh, and then, do you you went into industry after that? Correct. I did. I did. Maybe talk about that decision to go industry versus staying in academia.
0: Yeah. So so it's uh, it's um so I finished and I was absolutely convinced I would be an academic physicist. So my role models were the people that I had done my thesis work with. These were you know, either physicists at the universities or physicists at the laboratories. Um, but I actually somehow got this idea that I wanted to go see what it was like on the other side. How do people do real research, if at all, in a private sector setting? So I actually went to work for 3M um, uh, in Minnesota and i went there because they were doing work on uh, x-ray imaging systems so i was a particle detector person um for the next 10 or 15 years i ended up in the in the radiology side of the house building x-ray imaging systems building systems that take data and analyze it so very similar to what i had done in my thesis but doing it in a private sector setting and after a year of doing that i never looked back because i was in a lot of ways, more motivated by the sort of seeing something, getting an output, turning it into something that somebody could use. And in particular, I've been fortunate enough to be in a couple of industries where you sort of draw a direct connection between what you do and how people directly benefit from a human need point of view. So nothing against people who had three of them who were doing post-it notes, but I could say I was making people feel better or making people healthier. And so, so I did that for about, fifteen years and then sort of transitioned over to the general management side and I ran healthcare businesses for another ten years or so. Uh, there's a little spin-off in the middle of that, but ultimately twenty five years in Minnesota. So can,
1: can I ask you a side question on healthcare sure. really yeah. quick? Just given your background. I think it depends on on how what variable you use to rank the United States healthcare system. Certainly when it comes to um, you know, what we're spending on healthcare relative to the rest of the industrialized world, we're spending a lot more. Um, so by that metric, not so good uh, in terms of quality. I think, though, we're we're near the top uh, worldwide. The life expectancy is going down. But I think on innovation, we have to be still the world leader. Do you think that there's there that technology potentially offers us a way to sort of cut the Gordian knot? Of healthcare, or sort of transcend what's often called the iron triangle of costs, coverage, and, and, and quality.
0: I I do, and I spent a lot of years doing that and worrying about that because I think I think for how good it is, and and I agree with you on a lot of different measures. Um, th- there are also lots of process improvements that can be done, and there's lots of automation that can be done, and there's lots of sort of all the stuff we do at CMU, data analytics and all that. So there's a lot that technology can be applied. I think the only other thing I would say, just because of the way you led in the question is, um, we, well, maybe two things. Number one, we define healthcare in the U.S. perhaps a lot different than a lot of other places. So when we say we spend more than other places, it's because we wrap a lot of lifestyle into healthcare. We wrap a lot of other things that we all think about. So it, this, this is a bad example, and I don't me, mean it to really defend the point, but but elective things like plastic surgery, other countries wouldn't necessarily count that as healthcare expenditures. So, sure. so, yeah. so you have to be a little careful about the metrics. So that's point number one. Point number two, and I know you're you're you know this and you're involved in this. We fund as a country a lot of the innovation in healthcare for the world. Pharmaceuticals being one of them. And you know, people talk about how much we spend on pharmaceuticals, and we talk about how much pharmaceutical companies make. But the, but by and large, we do a, 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 the lion's share of the basic pharmaceutical research for the world. And so, you can argue whether we should be paying all the bills for that or not. I, I'm I'm not here to have that philosophical question. But but the reality is, the world benefits from from what we do in healthcare. And I think, you know, that makes me feel good. But it has a price
1: associated with it. Absolutely. Okay. So then you wound up at United Technologies Corporation, where you ran their science and technology yeah. division. Talk a little bit about that experience and and uh, what you did there at UTC.
0: Yeah. So, uh, so maybe for any sort of younger folks that are listening, I-, I made a rather unconventional move. Nobody leaves 3M. It's a great company. Uh, <laughs> and I was at a certain point in my life where I realized that if if i didn't make a change i knew what the rest of my career was going to be and it would it would have been good there's nothing wrong but i had the opportunity to go to utc and frankly be scared for a long time because it, i was no longer comfortable you know you get a little too comfortable and utc was a was an opportunity that was just too good to pass up so when i was there it's a different company now because of mergers and all that so half the company's aerospace and defense pratt and whitney aircraft engines Sikorsky Helicopters, uh, the Hamilton Train, because there's essentially everything else that goes on an airplane. The other half of the business was what we called the built environment. So it was things like Otis Elevator and carrier heating and air conditioning. So so I had the chance as the CTO of a company that had 20,000 engineers who every day got up and did really big and important stuff. You know, you were building engines, to use their tagline, building engines to power freedom. And you were also building, energy efficiency into buildings so that cities and countries could be operating more efficiently and people could urbanize and and all those sorts of things and to be able to do that for a company that was um really very legendary on the quality of its engineering you know and nobody would go and buy a product from utc because it was prettier or greener or made you feel better people bought products because they were highly engineered and outperformed everybody else and so every day you had to to do stuff that nobody else could do and that was a, that was just a terrific experience so wow yeah
1: so. was well, an ongoing theme in this podcast like trying to uh convince young kids that they need to be comfortable accepting risk and get outside of their comfort zone and not to say you wouldn't have had a great career in life had you stayed at 3M. But it's been my experience that people that are willing to sort of take those risks and reinvent themselves periodically throughout their career tend to be more successful. And for my generation and younger, the fact is we're going to be changing jobs a lot more than the previous generation, right? I mean, your dad's generation, I imagine he's probably millwright his whole life, right? Exactly. Good, honest living, honest wage. But you did that, you retired, you got a pension, et cetera that's just not the norm anymore right. particularly right. in states where you and i live it's gonna we're gonna have to create a generation of lifelong learners that can adapt and overcome so yeah <clears throat> okay so then that that was 2006 to 2018 at utc and then at that point did you return to carnegie mellon to complete the the hero's journey
0: the cycle yeah so so uh I had maybe six years before I retired at UTC. I had joined as a trustee on the board at CMU. Um, I retired from UTC after the, UTC has gone through a whole series of acquisitions, divestitures. It's now part of the merger with Raytheon. So it's a pure play A&D company. Um, I retired just when that sort of press on the Raytheon side was starting. So it was a good time to retire. I had been there and, and uh, and I was a very happily retired person who happened to come back for a board meeting at UTC and didn't run fast enough when the president started whispering in my ear about, you know, you could do this other thing. So, and given given my background, not just the association with the university, but given the kind of things that I was involved in and the impact of those things to be at a place like CMU, which is right at the forefront of things like Robotics and autonomy and artificial intelligence and not just the technical side of that, but the ethical side and the human implication side of that It, it was not it, it's it's too mild to say it was an opportunity. I couldn't pass up It was more than that. It was a really it was a terrific choice So
1: and then at what point did you serve on the president's council of advisors on science and technology and um, the defense innovation board?
0: so pcast was 2000 and. 10 till the end of the second obama term so six years or so um and then the defense innovation board was maybe 2016 i think is when we stood it up so and i'm still on that
1: okay right
0: so and for for the maybe for the younger folks uh that ability i mean you have to want to but that ability to do national service For someone who grew up like i did and benefited from so much of what this country did was just i mean it was a it was terrific opportunity
1: well it's a huge i mean you're not you know you're not you're not getting paid for for that aspect of it uh but uh or at least not making a lot of money and it is a huge sacrifice um and a, a valuable service i am concerned however that we often don't make it easy for uh people like you or people that have particularly people that have had success in private industry to serve full-time in the Defense Department or in the White House or, or things like that, um, which is a huge problem, because I don't think we sort of get that benefit of of unique and different outside voices and talent.
0: Yeah, I think, I think you're right. And I um, you can talk about that at sort of two levels. You talk about a sort of more senior people who could benefit yeah. by coming in and making the leadership easier. But one of the themes on the Defense Innovation Board is how do we get younger younger in their career people? I mean, look, it's very hard to compete with a Brand new machine learning artificial intelligence phd who's going to make you know $250,000 at a private sector company you're never going to win that argument on pay there are some things you can do but what we really need to do is create an ethos that says i can move back and forth and i don't have to go to the department of defense for five years as a machine learning specialist but i can do a tour there and then i can go back and and that means work has to be done both at the dod and at the private sector companies to make that to make that transition easier to go back and forth. and I think it adds perspective for the company and the DOD, but it also adds a tremendous amount of experience and contribution from the folks who do that.
1: Well, it's uh, as a member of the armed services committee, uh, the work of the defense innovation board has been extremely helpful. Um, you know, in addition to yourself, you have people like Eric Schmidt, who's also chairing this AI commission that I've worked with a little bit, because I have the cyber commission. Uh, you have folks like Reed Hoffman, who, uh, not, I'm, I might be confusing him with the Netflix CEO who just wrote a book that came out. Uh, Milo, Medine, yeah. Neil deGrasse Tyson. I mean, it's uh, it's really a unique mix of people. It's really really valuable.
0: And, and I have to say it, and it's it's uh, when Secretary Carter set it up, the the choice of people like that. So so you know, the fact of the matter is, one of the benefits of this particular board is probably less the conventional let's get in a room and let's talk and let's write reports we spent the first three years just going and sticking our nose in places and that was that was secretary carter's remit which is go see places so we spent a week in the gulf and talking to people and talking about innovation and talking about all the things that people like eric and milo and, and their experiences in the tech sector and my background and experience is sort of halfway between those two sectors and Frankly, that was probably more responsible for the kind of contributions that the DIB has made, more so because people like, you know, we'd go visit somewhere and people like Eric or Neil or or folks like that, people would listen, people would come out and people would talk. And so it was a a very, it still continues to be a really good experience in that sense.
1: Do you and Neil deGrasse Tyson ever just find yourselves in really obscure debates about physics and about like the nature of matter and things like that
0: yeah m- yes but but more of the debates with neil center around uh neil's view that the number one priority for the country should be mounting an asteroid defense so um
1: so <laughs> yeah no, that, that was his view
0: <laughs> well i'm being a little bit facetious but it is something he believes quite strongly in actually so
1: that's funny uh yeah. okay well yeah i mean i watched that movie armageddon and that freaked me out <laughs> so uh maybe he's onto something Okay, so you are now at Carnegie Mellon as the vice president for research. Um, you're really in an ideal place to sort of talk about the intersection of uh, higher higher learning and the federal government when it comes to research and development. Um, I wanna, before we get into that, though, I want to preface this with, a, with a, a story. I've only been to Pittsburgh once, and it was to visit a college friend of mine who was at medical school there, and uh, I sort of had in my mind sort of an image of Pittsburgh as like very industrial, blue collar, you know, and it is that in some sense. But driving through it and arriving, I was struck at just how, I, I don't know, innovative and um, vibrant uh, and and new, it seemed, at the same time. And maybe that sounds insulting to a native, native of Pittsburgh, but I— it really made me feel like whatever is going on with the symbiosis between the university and the legacy industries there is is special, and you can feel it when you go there.
0: Yeah, I, I, let me let me sort of riff on that for two two different things. First, first of all, I will make the shameless plug because given what you do for a living these days and the work on the cyber commission and everything else, we'd love to have you come by. I mean, just just to see how this kind of stuff gets done, and frankly there's a lot of reasons to think it's the center of the world and a lot of things that matter. So, so that's my shameless plug. So, um, so I'll I'll t- tell you the story that comes back. So
1: if, as long okay. as I can wear that Bart Starr jersey, when I come to visit, I yeah, will gladly come.
0: As long as you allow me to have police protection, you'll be fine. So <laughs> actually Bart Starr probably is fine because
1: he's, he's a, everyone loves Bart Starr. He's great yeah, guy. Exactly.
0: So, so from the year I started as an undergraduate at Carnegie Mellon, halfway, I just happen to know this, because halfway through my graduate career, 250,000 jobs disappeared in Pittsburgh. Wow. In a city which is, in many ways, just like where you are in the Midwest, it's a city that built its economy and built its contribution to the nation on hard work, dirty fingernails, and people who were committed to what they did. And you, you can imagine how devastating that was. And yet... What happened was this transformation that' it's, it's a really important model for the Midwest and for and I think about Pittsburgh as sort of the, the beginning of the Midwest. places like CMU and places like Pitt, which, which were and are but were fabulous universities, really made a commitment at that time that they needed to play a bigger part in the economic development of the city. And so the economy that has changed, which still bears this we do stuff that matters. We do work that's hard work. We we don't we don't do fancy. We do we do real stuff. Combined with uh, the creation of the entire autom- autom- autonomy robotics industry and and with Pitt with the medtech industry and so the transformation that occurred in Pittsburgh was not on a scale of one win that turned into 50,000 jobs in the city, but you know we have we have a laboratory called the National Robotics Engineering Center, which is a high Bay facility where we do big robotics. Um, it is two miles from campus in what was a very depressed area, and there are now thirty robotics companies that have formed around that location, many of which are spin-offs from the people and the staff in that location. That sort of economic transformation, based on technology, based on the investments in technology that come from the, the government and from the private sector, and from people willing to roll up their sleeves and, and do that hard work, that's what we all need to do in, in the heartland of the country. You know, I mean, I think that's what's gonna be the way we get through the, the challenges that we've all had. And, and Wisconsin's no different than that. It's, it's got legacies which are, which are decidedly not shiny high tech, and yet, it's able to make that transition because down when you cut through everything else, it's people who realize that you, you just have to work hard at
1: this stuff. One hundred percent. And I so I'd imagine most of the jobs that were initially lost were related to the steel industry yeah. itself, right? Absolutely. So it's just this amazing story about how a whole city can reinvent itself and not only survive but thrive if the right people are willing to work together. Uh, it really is exciting. I think about this a lot. You know, in Wisconsin. You know, obviously, you know, we, we got two big cities, Madison and Milwaukee, and, and they're going to be fine always, though they have their challenges. You know, it's hard enough for us to recruit talent to come to a Green Bay or an Appleton, let alone. I mean, think of all the small towns in the industrial Midwest that are suffering, right? These little towns Seymour, more brilliant, you know, throughout Wisconsin, where, you know, how do you convince that talented kid who graduates from University of Wisconsin or from Carnegie Mellon? to move back home and pour their energy and intellect into something that not only benefits them, but their their mid to small town. I mean, that's sort of the next phase of this problem, I think.
0: I, I think you're right. And I think we'll benefit a little bit because the technology allows us to be a little bit less place dependent. And... Assuming you
1: have internet in that place. Exactly,
0: which is is critical to that. Um, I think the other issue is, and and I think this is part of the Pittsburgh story too, I think when things all sort of fell apart, uh, I think a lot of people were just hoping that we would find the next really big thing. So we would move from steel to X and X would employ 200,000 people. I just don't think that's a practical model right now. I mean, I think places like Pittsburgh and places like Green Bay and places like Appleton, they're going to be a lot of smaller things, not insignificant things. And, and the technology allows us to be significant on a global scale, even when we're a local entity. But I think we have to get a lot more comfortable that it's going to be a lot of pieces that get put together as opposed to it's the one big win that's going to drive us. And and I think it, you, you mentioned in, in the beginning, I, I think part of what Endless Frontiers is about is the set of, technologies, if you will, or the set of things that matter across that scale of things. I mean, advanced manufacturing isn't about recreating the steel industry. It's about making 50 different industries. And I think I think that's why Endless Frontiers is going to matter at, at such a big scale.
1: Uh, well, let's, that's a good transition point to Endless Frontiers. For the uninitiated, that's the bipartisan bicameral bill I have that would basically be a massive federal investment in research and development and a variety of errors with the goal of streamlining the way in which R and D uh, money is awarded at the federal level uh, and also creating a, a series sort of a constellation of regional technological hubs, uh, preferably in the Midwest uh, so that, you know, not everything is concentrated on the left coast or the East coast. Um, maybe uh, so for, I guess for the skeptics, uh, Michael, what a th- that would say, let's say the conservative skeptic who would say, well, you know, industry has to has to pay for R&D. This stuff will naturally uh, happen if we just let the invisible hand do its work. Why 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 do we even need the federal government, um, you know, providing a Carnegie Mellon with with research grants?
0: So so I'll give you sort of a couple of answers. So, so first of all, l- let me give you the proof point. So. So a hundred years of what I would call the great triumvirate, which is the government willingness to spend on early stage research that companies, even in the past, but even more so now, companies are not going to do because it's too speculative, but government investment and government laboratories, universities for which we are not only doing the research, but we are creating the people who will do the research wherever they go in the future and the private sector willing to invest in research that will lead to monetary remuneration, right? There are not a lot of companies who do research because they're altruistically gonna make the country better. They do research because they have shareholders and they wanna have a return on that. But when you put those three things together and each one has a role and each one has a place, you get the semiconductor revolution, you get the bio ag revolution, you get modern communication and the internet. And if you take one of those out of the picture, take the universities out of the picture and say, I'm just gonna spend all that money on national labs and I'm gonna let the private sector do it. You're not gonna have educated people to be able to do that work five years from now or 10 years from now. If you take the government out, then it's not clear to me that you're going to invest in things for which you don't immediately see how it goes from A to B and, and matters to somebody. And if you take the companies out, you know, at some point the research has to have a value to society, and that turns out because somebody makes a product or a service. And so so, you know, my argument all along is that has allowed the United States to define leadership in the world for a hundred years. And I think that's extremely that's an extremely important. Now, if I'm a taxpayer and I don't have roads that are that are in good shape or I need different healthcare or whatever. I think we have to make that justification all the time. And so we have to be able to tell the story of what comes out of that research. You know, I benefited from what people would say, oh my God, why are we spending money on particle physics? That guy just explained things that I don't know what he was talking about. And yet I will tell you about the radiation oncology work that came out of that. I will tell you about the people who did that 50 years ago who launched the quantum electronics revolution that led to the semiconductor revolution, right? So we have to be able to defend those stories to to the average citizen who in a budget constrained world has their needs too.
1: That is very well put. Um, And I think, I mean, there are any number of technologies we take for granted that you can trace their origin back to a DOD grant or a DARPA grant. I mean, the internet itself is probably the best uh, example. Or even where maybe there's not a direct line, there's some involvement, uh, and uh, and precisely because we take it for granted, it's it's hard sometimes to to realize to to convince people of the need to continue that investment. Do you think there's something to this argument uh, that okay, for the last hundred years, because of this unique collaboration that we've had. Uh, because of the federal government, particularly during the Cold War, our willingness to invest in R&D and our post-Sputnik investments that Eisenhower made, um, we were able to be the sort of leader of the free world and dominant economic power. But really, in the last three decades, we've, our supply chains have have gone global, and therefore they're they're more fragile. Um, and in some cases, they have single points of failure that lead back to Beijing. Um, do you have a, a dog in that fight, or a, a sort of a, a an opinion on that? Uh,
0: I would say a couple of things. So first of all, uh, I think we have been slow to recognize, uh, and you can use your own adjective, peer, near peer, whatever, competitor. You know, I think I think we had a cold war for a long time where we had two military powers, but. Quite honestly, we were never really challenged on our investment in science and technology, et cetera. I think I think we have somebody who's a lot bigger than we are, who is investing a lot of resources. And to be honest, they're following our playbook in how they're creating that triumvirate. They also play by some different rules that can make us feel like you know we have a different view on democracy and those sorts of things. Having, so that's so so number one, I would say we are in a competitive situation. And my my sort of if you say my, my dog in the hunt is I would simply say that that I believe that our best path forward is to outcompete, not to not to do things that cause us to lose more slowly than the other guy. So I think we have to get this balance right between security and collaboration. We have to get this balance right between um, between the the real aberrant behavior that we need to protect be, be protected from and the places where we still need to find a way to make a difference on the world scale um second i think that we have still the opportunity to 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 lead and we still lead and we need to continue to endless frontiers is a part of that endless frontiers is about two different i'm, I'm pre- pre- preaching to the choir here right it is about I love it,
1: it's good
0: <laughs> It it is about investment in basic technology. It's a very big commitment if we all are able to get that passed. But it is also about how rapidly can I get that to make a difference. And I think that's one of the beauties of Endless Frontiers is that it's not one or the other. If if Endless Frontiers was just, I need to invest in technology transition, I might be raising my hand and saying, don't don't kill the, the, the golden goose here that's got to be at the beginning. But it isn't that. It is about Continued investment in the science, and how do we put in place the mechanisms to get that to make a difference? And that's that's my version of how we have to compete, quite honestly.
1: Well, and I think there's, um, you know, particularly in the midst of the the pandemic, there there's a lot of, I think, well-intentioned, made-in-America energy. And I'm all for making things in America in general and in Wisconsin in particular. Sure. But we're not going to make everything in America. Uh, we shouldn't try to do that. I think there's a way you can... Um, use some of this to actually promote closer partnerships with allies and friends around the world that we that we trust, uh, or in certain American territories like Puerto Rico, where we've disinvested in pharmaceutical manufacturing, for example, to kind of to to bring brings near shore, if not onshore entirely.
0: I, I agree, and I think I think there's a there's another stream in here and. and Defense in your bailiwick. I think we do have to have a very hard conversation continually, not just because there's something right now. We need to have that hard conversation about what is it that we cannot afford to have somewhere else on the supply chain. And I think the I think the semiconductor dialogue that's going on around investment in local stuff. I think that's a big part of that. I think, quite honestly, given the the importance for not only the economy of the country, but the security of the country. I think the whole discussion around 5G is an absolutely necessary discussion, because those are things that are so critical to us economically and security-wise. We can't be left sort of hanging. On the other hand, and and I think you make a really important point, there's a lot of allies out there, and, and there's a lot of ways we can combine to help set a global view of a, of an integrated approach that doesn't have to make everything be done in not just Wisconsin, but Pittsburgh. So.
1: And I want to highlight the, um, the defense innovation board has done some great work on the 5g uh, a question. Uh, I believe there's a report called the 5g ecosystem. You put out risk and opportunities, which is fantastic. I agree with you hundred percent on that, but even on 5g, I think there's an opportunity where we've been playing mostly a defensive game the last few years saying Huawei bad, ZTE bad, Huawei bad, ZTE bad. Okay, yes, Huawei bad, ZTE bad. But, you know, our allies have a point when they when they ask, well, Huawei and ZTE offer an integrated solution, right? It's like 5G in a box. Right. Uh, there's no non-Huawei alternative that's that easy. Put aside the price question, right? right. We know that the CCP subsidizes their national champions, but just on sort of ease of use, we have to find a way to sort of work together with our allies to offer that kind of free world solution.
0: I agree, I agree, and and I think the only other thing I would add on top of that, and I think endless frontier is part of that, I think we also need to recognize that even if we were 100% successful in that, there will be parts of the world that still use Huawei and ZTE, and we need to know how to operate in what we would call a known compromised world. I mean, it's not like the stuff is going to go away. And so we need to be aware that, that while we can figure out what we want to do with allies and, and, and the intelligence we can bring from this country, it, it, you know there are big competitors out there and we need, we need to exist in that world.
1: Uh, can we talk a little bit about the human side of this? Because it strikes me that even if we spend more money on R&D, even if we have a productive partnership between higher education and the federal government, Really, it all comes down to smart human beings, right? Smart, hardworking human beings, uh, and not just Americans, but globally. How do we attract the best talent? Uh, how does How does Carnegie Mellon think about sort of the question of attracting top-level talent, particularly in STEM fields? Uh, have you encountered any um, uh, not controversy, but uh, friction, given that you know at the federal level we're kind of pushing universities to not bring Chinese researchers with clear PLA affiliations, uh, that that sort of issue.
0: So so big and complicated and important issue, and just to set scale. So so I have a federally funded research and development uh, entity called the Software Engineering Institute at CMU. It does highly classified work. And yet I'm a university who its starting assumption is the value of what a university does is open, publishable, foundational research work. And so we have to get that balance right all the time, and, and that means we do need to be aware of where people's affiliations are. And so, and it's it's a more complicated situation than it was 10 years ago. And and so we do worry about that. Um, the flip side of that is we, we also worry that if we paint with too broad of a brush, we're going to end up not not having the quality of the people who want to effectively and appropriately collaborate with the United States. So, so I think we need to be a little little nuanced, not a little, we need to be a lot nuanced in our responses. I think, I think we, we are more than we were even a couple of years ago. Um, the other thing I would say is uh, post-World War II, the, the United States ran for 75 years, the world's most important talent acquisition program. We we made this a place where people wanted to come and when we were comfortable with their affiliations and their backgrounds, then we made it easier for them to stay here. And there are two consequences of that. Number one, forget the nefarious action. We should not be surprised when other countries try and duplicate that model. And so it's a, you know, they learn from us. Um, And the second is uh, we need to, to the maximum extent, we can be comfortable We need to use the security resources that we have to vet properly, but we also do need to make it easy and desirable for people who want to be here for good reasons to be here. And I think if we disengage too far, you know, it it would be easy to say, let's just invest in STEM students in the United States and we'll replace all the foreign students with STEM students in the United States. You know, talk to me in 10 or 15 years and we'll see whether we've been successful at doing that. We just we can't afford to disengage but we do need the appropriate security you know security mechanisms in place
1: yeah to me i mean the the principle is is simple but the execution is is difficult right i mean we want the you know top level ai talent you know engineering talent physics talent that studied at our best universities to stay here Right. Preferably start businesses in, you know, Wisconsin uh, that employ hundreds and thousands of people. um, And we should make it easier for those people to do it. We want them on our on our team working on cool uh, projects that will help our economy and our national security. But we should have the ability via our intelligence community to determine that for those people that are engaged in espionage, or let's say Chinese united front work uh, who are interested in stealing our technology and then using it to build weapons that will be used against us in a conventional conflict. We don't want them here in the first place. Absolutely. Easier said than done, but at least the principle is a simple one. Um, I've come to believe that in some, in some respects, we lack the analytical capability in the, in the intelligence community to really understand the nature of Chinese united front work and sort of the opaque, space between all out espionage and just, you know, honest, honest research, because it can be very difficult to map that out at times. I
0: I think it is a scale problem. And I think I think you put your finger on something really important. So so let's some numbers for a second. So most people will say there's sort of order of magnitude, three hundred and fifty thousand Chinese students in the United States. Uh, It it clearly is not one Chinese student who's a bad actor. It's also clear it's not three hundred thousand. And so so what we need our government security partners to be able to do is to be very tactical. You know, tell me the tell me where the real issues are and tell me how we can help respond. Sometimes it's easier just to do things in a more blanket fashion because if I don't have the capacity, I'm going to plug the dike and and that can be self-defeating over the long term. And so I'm 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 sort of coming to the same place you are, which is which is, we do need to be more analytical. We need to be more tactical, and we need to be willing to say, when people do bad things, we, we, the university community, or we in general, when people do bad things, that's not acceptable.
1: One hundred percent. And I know the question that the Defense Innovation Board has thought a lot about, and then Eric Schmidt on the AI Commission has thought uh, a lot about. But we have this, we we just have this incredible asset that is our higher education system, that is the envy of the world, we should be, we, we should be using it right to attract top level talent from around the world. Um, well, maybe can I, can I draw you out on on that a little bit without getting too political? I, I do worry that there's, there's a perception emerging that higher ed is, is a hostile place for conservatives or is becoming a little bit more liberal when it comes to free speech and free inquiry. Um, uh, and, and it's obviously, you know, it's easy fodder for for cable news and and things like that. And we have, in my opinion, we've had had some troubling instances of ideological uh, rigidity. Uh, let's say, how does Carnegie Mellon think about that, and how does that nest within Carnegie Mellon's overall mission as a as a place for research and, and inquiry?
0: Yeah. So, so I think, first of all, I I, I don't want to pretend there isn't an, an issue and. University campuses in general. I would say it is fodder for a lot of conversation in the media that maybe makes it be a bigger problem than it really is. That so it's sort of like my foreign influence issue. It's probably not as big a problem as some people want it to be, but it's not a zero problem. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I think the university works very hard uh, to get the balance right, and uh, I, I would say we have a philosophical statement we use that that sometimes I think is helpful in this conversation, which is. When a when a student says, "Why are you letting person X have a platform?" and and at a place like Carnegie Mellon, person X can be on the far left or the far right, and and we get all of that. And, and the answer we give people is is our priority isn't to give that person a platform. Our priority is to give students the ability to hear other people, and that's that's free free speech is in 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 that philosophy. Is more about your freedom to hear something than it is somebody else's freedom to say something, and I think when you use that as the as the rubric, you get to a, a slightly different connotation. Um, how, how does it relate to the research agenda that I have responsibility for? Uh, we have people who argue that we should not be just doing certain kinds of research and. Uh, You know, if you do research for the government, therefore, you're bad or whatever. I mean, you you know, college campuses can 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 be like that. And the fact is, we use the same. We use the same argument that there are people who are uh, as committed to their research as you are committed to yours. And they have the right to pursue that. Uh, Nobody gets forced to do anything. You know, if people from outside don't understand. So so I carry the title of vice president for research. If I ever walked into CMU one day and I told a professor what to do they would give me a salute with with only one finger. And, you know, so, so faculty work on what they feel comfortable working on. And that's as much what academic freedom means as anything else.
1: That's well said. Um, to go back to the human question, um, uh, I would imagine that a lot of this uh, has to start, particularly for the STEM fields, um, talent acquisition and development has to start well before someone gets to Carnegie Mellon uh, in the K through 12 space. Um, There's been a lot said about how we're just not, you know, uh, K through 12 outcomes are, are uh, not great. I mean, they vary by States, but internationally, I think we're losing ground relative to some competitors. How do you as a university think about, um, you know, partnering with your, your K through 12 systems nearby? Are you, are you having to remediate certain things that you thought you know, you assumed a student would be coming in as a freshman with a certain level of skill set when it comes to uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic that they don't have, um, or is this just something that I'm, I, you know, I shouldn't be lumping in with this this discussion?
0: Uh, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a question. It's a point. I, I would say that. Uh, so, so I don't want to sound, I don't want to sound sort of like we're different than anybody else. CMU is a very highly selective.
1: Unit. You're a homer, Michael. We understand. It's okay. <laughs>
0: Okay. So so we don't necessarily carry the same mission of a land grant uh, state university. Right. So and that can be perceived as being arrogant or whatever. But, we, you know, our so do we have people who come because of their background? They need they need help. So the answer is yes. But but it's not help because they can't do the work that we highly select people to come to the university. It's maybe the things that they didn't get as part of their milieu in in, in high school or whatever that we can help with. And, and so so we do that. And and uh, and that cuts across all the different socioeconomic and diversity things that you could think about. But um, we we also do partnering with the city schools and we do we have a lot of we do a lot of research which is about community engagement. There's there's sort of the meta version of that. How do I do research in how you should engage with a community? How do I do community research? And then there's all the elements around, you know, what does the, what's the impact of technology in the community, and how do we use technology for good in the community? And so, so I think that's where we probably get the most play in helping prepare for the future.
1: You guys have sports at Carnegie Mellon, or is it just all particle physics? Let's, let's just and robotics. in
0: 1927 or something. We beat Notre Dame in a football game. Wow! Only because, only because the referee said it was fourth down and made Notre Dame punt when it was only third down. But we'll put that aside. So, uh, so we have we have sports. We do. We have you know, Division three sports, and we don't right now uh, in the COVID environment. Uh, we're not having athletics uh, athletic teams on campus right now. So, but uh, but generally, you know, it's a part of the environment here.
1: Well, I just looked it up. You guys are the Tartans. Uh, I didn't know that. But I assume that's a Scottish connection to Carnegie, right? That's
0: Andrew Carnegie. Yeah. And and I'm going to wrap this back to the very beginning of the conversation. If you look at the sort of the founding documents, Andrew Carnegie founded Carnegie Tech, which became the engineering school, to be a place where the children of his steel workers in the steel plants in Pittsburgh could come and get a practical engineering education. And that DNA suffuses the university a hundred years later. It is, I will put up the the theoretical computer scientists and the mathematicians and the brilliant fine arts people, the theoretical folks up against anybody in the world, but the ethos of the university is, how do I turn it into something that gets out the door? And that goes back to to this Scottish Andrew Carnegie influence on creating the DNA of the university.
1: I love that. Um, There's something in in the UW system that we call the Wisconsin Idea, which dates back... Uh, to the, sort of the progressive era, 1920s uh 20s and, and before uh, La Follette was our, our governor. But the basic idea is sort of, you know, education can empower the citizens of Wisconsin and the educational system has a duty to use its talents in service of the state in a variety of industries. I'm not sure we're fully living up to the Wisconsin idea, but the basic idea is still still yeah. there. It's a it's a sound you, one. You have you know? still
0: have the guiding light somewhere, even if you even if you close your eyes for a little bit. So
1: so in the in the minutes we have left here, I want to talk about a, uh, a few more fun things. Not that research and development isn't fun. Yep. Not that uh, endless frontiers isn't incredibly fun, and physics isn't fun because it is. Uh, but how? Okay, so you uh, as as now a um, a leader on a, a university campus, uh, but with a a, a background in, in physics. What is your sort of daily or weekly kind of uh, digest of of books and, and things like that? Are you reading more kind of broad uh, education stuff, or are you still keeping up with professional physics right. journals? And and uh, the 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 secondary question is, do you make time to read fiction?
0: So uh, I'll answer the third one third one first. The okay. answer is yes. Uh, my, my sort of operating mode is I always am reading two books. One is fiction and one is nonfiction.
1: Um, okay, I have to draw you out on this. Okay. Uh, because I have, I have in the past operated similarly where I have one, I sort of have my vegetables that I'm reading yeah. and then I got the dessert. Uh, and usually before bed, I'll read the dessert. But I've now shifted to a model where I just finish one and then go to the other and go back and forth but I'm torn. I'm not sure which is, which is better, to be honest with you.
0: Yeah. And, and, and in a world where, where remote and zoom have made it so that we have less free time because we think that you can do conference calls 14 hours a day, it gets even harder along the way. But, but I try and keep both going at the same time and it means it takes longer to read the books, but that's okay. So, um, I read a lot of, I read a lot of technical stuff. Uh, Physics, just to pretend that I still understand it, even though it's been a long time since I was a practicing physicist, but but a lot of the stuff around the technologies that matter to us. I read a lot of policy stuff because of the Defense Innovation Board, Uh, and I read a lot of history um, of of all different kinds. Uh, And then just on the sort of the fiction side. Sorry, a lot of science fiction, but you would expect that. But I tend to pick books where I, I just I love good writing. You know, it's almost subject independent. It's just if I pick up a book where somebody knows how to put words together, I will just revel on a book like that. for.
1: Did you say you don't read science fiction or you no, do? I do. I do? OK. Are there any science fiction favorites of yours? I hate to put people on the spot with with yeah. this question.
0: So so I'm a big fan of uh, an author who just passed away not so long ago named Ian Banks uh
1: we see hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy or who um, was... he wrote a
0: series of books called the culture novels that were it's it, the the underlying thesis is sort of what's called a post-scarcity society when interesting when, when you can when you have solved your energy problem. so when you cut everything away lots of things are denominated by not having enough energy and when you solve that problem then then lots of different possibilities open up and so they're they're snarky and they're light and they're fun. And, you know, the only, the only thing bad about them is that he passed away before he wrote more. So.
1: Oh, interesting. OK. Ian Banks. I'll have to yeah. check that out. OK. I just read the second book in a series called the Old Man's War series, which is a sci-fi. Uh, On Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. the first one was very good. Second one was OK, but I'll I'll, I'll stick around for the third. So and there's
0: a, like a twenty five or thirty year time frame in between when he wrote the two books, right?
1: I mean, oh, is that? Yeah, I didn't know that, actually. Oh, yeah, I think,
0: I think okay. Old Man's War is quite a, a, bit, a bit older, so.
1: Interesting. Okay. Um, okay, so you read fiction, you read science fiction. I support both of those things. Um, what about more lowbrow pursuits? Have you indulged in the shutdown, um, you know, Netflix binge of Tiger King or things that you're embarrassed to admit as a distinguished Member of the Defense Innovation Board.
0: <laughs> so, so, so I don't have to be embarrassed by I, I'm not a streaming person other than every Star Trek streaming thing that comes along. But I'm, I'm not generally a what's the latest five-episode Netflix thing. I will confess that, and here's the embarrassing thing, is that I hadn't seen any of them before. But I have to confess that in the first months, my wife and I watched 25 straight Avengers movies from beginning to end so i got I them all there were
1: 25 total I,
0: 25. I and we watched I guess the-, with
1: the expanded universe and all the characters exactly. yeah
0: exactly wow we watched them all in order so
1: do you yeah. have a favorite among the avengers movie uh, I there's like a right answer to this
0: the right answer uh, yeah y- yeah uh, a- anything that doesn't have the snarky raccoon is one of my favorites so,
1: <laughs> so you don't like guardians of the galaxy no uh, I think unequ- uh, the, the the best movie by far is is Thor Ragnarok uh, of all of them. I thought I like, the, I like
0: the Thor movies a lot. Yeah. Um
1: okay, so you you did indulge in the in the Avengers binge. Um <laughs> oh hey, by the way, are are you how is Carnegie Mellon thinking about on campus right now versus virtual? Are students back or how does that work yeah, So
0: so we are in what we've defined as a hybrid mode which is almost all classes Um, The professor delivers the class live, but is also being live streamed at the same time, and so students have the option to come to class uh, and our classes have all been redistributed so people don't sit near each other and everybody wears a mask and all that, or they can do the class online. Um, There's a small, very small percentage of our classes for which online doesn't work, certain laboratory classes and things like that. We either have been able to do those or we've rearranged the schedule so they do those next semester along the way. Our resident population is is down quite a bit. Uh, We only have about 25 or 30% of the residents who normally live on campus on campus. Um, And our Pittsburgh population, so including the non-residents, about 65% maybe of students are in the Pittsburgh area and the rest are wherever they are around the world taking their classes from us. So
1: do you think that this is going to be an extinction level event for a lot of colleges out there? I mean, obviously, you guys will be fine. You know, big yeah. universities will be fine. But I think I think I, I just think this is going to change behavior uh, um, meaningfully going forward. And there's going to be some smaller colleges that don't survive.
0: I, I I fear that's the case. So so I think that's that's right. And I I. Um, you know, I think, there, I think we're getting a lot of lessons out of this, one of which is how important real-time contact is, even if it's remote, versus the sort of classic, you know, massive online course kind of thing. And so um, I, think, I think at the public institutions, like the state university systems, uh, I worry because there are financial implications that are a lot to keep those open, and I worry that people will say well, we don't need the on-campus experience. I, I think a lot of people don't, but I think a lot of you know, 18, 19, 20 year olds benefit from the, an on-campus experience. So I hope that the fallout isn't too bad, but I think we are redefining the way technology is gonna matter in universities. And I think even at a place, as you say, I, I don't think CMU is particularly worried that its mission is gonna go away and we'll get through all this, but I think it will redefine how much time people need to spend live versus how much they can do do new methods of teaching. We have one of the benefits we have at CMU. We have a 50 year history of one of our deepest research themes on campus is is what we call the science of learning. And in a lot of ways, if you trace the history, artificial intelligence was not an outgrowth of pure computer science at CMU. It was an outgrowth of social science, brain research, decision making and optimization, And and how the brain works translating into how machines work and so we we have we've invested other people's money foundation money sort of over a hundred million dollars worth of research in how people learn and how to optimize how people learn all of that comes in very handy when you have to make these sudden transitions to to these online learning platforms
1: okay my penultimate question uh, given Carnegie Mellon's uh... Uh, leadership in AI and robotics. When the robots take over, can you just put in a good word for me? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I think I can be useful in that in that dystopian future. I'm good at hard labor. So. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, And I think the robots will be looking for kind and gentle people. And um, you know, I think I think I'll I'll make one serious pivot and put in a plug. I think because uh, I, kn- I know you're in the middle of this conversation. I think the work we did on the defense innovation board but more importantly the work the department of defense is doing on ethics associated with ai is extraordinarily important and cmu was a contributor to that i I think we talked about sort of being a leader in amongst like-minded nations i think our ability to stake out a leadership role in what it means to use ai ethically and we'll learn and we'll have mistakes and all of that but but purely the fact that the department of defense Determined that that's an important thing to do, I think, is, is a really important proof point for why this country is the kind of country it is.
1: Completely agree. And just from a, a theoretical perspective or a, um, you know, I don't even, I wouldn't, international relations theory perspective or political science perspective, the debates happening on that right now are just as, if not more important than the debates on nuclear strategy and deterrence that occurred in the 40s and the early 50s. Um, Mm-hmm. And I think it's an exciting field therefore for a young kid uh, to get into right now because we're going those debates are going to be with us for the next 50 or 100 years. I
0: think you're right and I think you know when we started to do the when the Secretary asked us to to put together a program to understand what the issues are around ethics in AI we we actually used the nuclear situation as a as an example because I mean you know this from your background the, the department operates with a very sort of well-defined set of standards and guidance and ethical principles, the, the theory of war and armed conflict, all of those things are part and parcel of what every soldier learns and what every leader learns. And and so when you talk about something like nuclear weapons or AI, the first question you have to ask is, is is there anything different here or should I just apply all the rules that I already know how? And, and in the 1950s, we, we as a country reached the conclusion that The transition to a set of weapons that could have cataclysmic global impact meant we couldn't just say we just know how to do this, because we know how to shoot bullets correctly right. And that was a whole part of the conversation around Ai which is, is it any different than any other system and in a lot of ways it's not but given. Given its implications on the data sets it used, given its implications of the transparency and explainability, we do think we did, and, and and we're gratified the department took up the banner that said, this really does matter, and we need to think about this as a, as a department and as a country.
1: Well, you guys have been doing phenomenal work on it, and I salute you for it. So, final question for you. Uh, when you come to uh... Green Bay, Wisconsin, after we burn your Steeler scarf and effigy and we're having a beer in the shadow of Lambeau Field, a young Wisconsinite comes up to you and says, Dr. McQuaid, uh, I'm a huge fan of your work. I wanna pursue a career uh, in hard sciences, uh, a career that allows me to go in between academia and industry. Uh, What advice would you have for that young Wisconsinite?
0: That's a, that's a really good question. Um, I, I would say a couple of things. So, so first of all, let's all set as a baseline. Uh, you can't not have a way of providing your basic needs. So you need a job. You need a job that pays you to do the kind of things you want. But to the maximum extent that you can cover that, my advice to people in that situation is always do, do a career, do a job, and change a job because you get to learn something new or because the thing you were doing for the last period of time, you weren't learning anything new doing it. And, and, and so I have been extraordinarily fortunate to be able to make a couple of hops right at the time when I could go do something that made me something more than I was before. And so, so that's, that's one motivation. The second is, uh, you know, there is a sense of loyalty and responsibility. So it's not just about what you want out of your career. We as a country, our society does best when people also make a commitment to the work and the people that they work with, etc. So there's a loyalty issue. But even within that context, don't, don't overstay your welcome when you have bad people around you or what you're doing isn't something that meets your sort of ethical leadership or ethical boundaries along the way. And then just be light on your feet. I mean, just be, be ready to jump at a great opportunity. And and you know what? You, you talked about this before. K- kids today are going to have multiple careers. Having some sort of theme between them sometimes is a good thing, but, you know, don't overstay your welcome.
1: That is great advice. On that last point, I love the way you put it, light on your feet. I've often – I've dreamed of giving like a college or a high school graduation speech where I break all this – Airy fairy advice into like practical stuff. And one of my practical uh, uh, pieces of advice to kids in their 20s, besides that you should go to every wedding and every bachelor party that you get invited to, no matter what. Not uh, in a COVID, not in a COVID, not in a COVID world, assuming we're not in a pandemic, is you should be able to fit all of your worldly possessions into the back of your car in less than an hour. Cause that's yeah. your relative advantage as a 20 year old. Like you don't, you, you can go anywhere. You can do anything. You, you yeah. can, you can be light on your feet. I love that. Uh, and then on your first point, I think, you know, if you're intellectually curious, like you can make anything interesting, right? You can endure any uh, hard post or, or job uh, if you find a way to learn from it. So yeah. very good advice, doctor.
0: Yeah. But, and, and the last thing is that you said this, right? You, you always want to be able to look in the mirror and say, why am I doing what I'm doing? Right. There's a bit of self-reflection that's necessary.
1: So. I love anyway. it. Well, thank you for taking the time. Uh, this has been fascinating. Uh, thank you for everything you're doing for uh, the Defense Department. And uh, I will take you up on the offer of coming to visit uh, and talking about cyber and, and whatever else you uh, do uh, in Pittsburgh soon. Sounds
0: terrific. Thanks very much. I really appreciate it. Good. Good. Right, conversation. Right. Go back. You're doing To do the best, yeah, to do the best To do the best, yeah, to do the best To do the best, yeah, to do the
1: best To do the best, do the best